Welcome to Cinemaker's Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 17, Ocean's 12, from 2004. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. This is our first sequel in Cinemakers. We haven't had too many sequels, I don't think, Mike, in all the things we've done, really. We've had the Transformers trilogy. We've had the Matrix trilogy, Ghost Rider, and National Treasure. But is that it? Might be. Oh, Neighbors over at Zack Attack. Uh, Bill and Ted had a sequel. Maybe we've had a lot of sequels. <laughs> no, but like until we started listening to them, I was like, we haven't really done many. But this is our first sequel. It's the middle of a trilogy. Uh, there is a really cool, before we really get into the movie, there's a really cool theory that I just read on IndieWire, and I sent to Mike and Tobin, that there's this idea that this movie is actually about how hard it is to make a sequel, which this is a movie that has grown on me, that I think if you compare it to the first one, it's hard to be anything other than a disappointment. Because the first one is just so fun and so slick and so perfect. But if you let this stand on its own or sort of hear what it has to say, or I think the the sort of the, the less you can compare it directly to the first one, still understanding it's in the same world, I think the better this one holds up, especially if it's about how hard it is to make a sequel. That was a Matt Singer article you sent. He's super yes. smart. Uh, I like to think of him as a friend of the podcast. He obviously doesn't know us, but I've been reading him for a long, long time. And <laughs> you used to live in his neighborhood. And he is such a great take because, you know, so many movies are by maybe accident are sort of about the sort of tell the story of the making of their own movie in a way, like their own genesis in some way. And this this is just much more explicitly so. I, I thought he was a really well-argued piece, and it hit me at just the right point. I feel the same way. I wrote at the top of my notes, after finishing the movie, I wrote, I kind of love this movie. And then I scratched out, kind of. I love this movie. I, and I didn't the first time I saw it. Uh, this is the fourth time I've seen it, maybe. And it, every time has grown on me. And I, I can't wait to talk about the various ways it surprised me this time. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Do you love it more than the first no, one? No, 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 no. But I, okay. but I, but I do love it. But I do love it. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. Like I obviously don't love it as much as the first one, but this is about the third or fourth time I've seen it all the way through, and it really does grow on you, or it's grown on me uh, a lot. Like I, I really enjoyed the experience this time. I, I think partially it might be because you know what's going on a little bit better. Like you've been but through. But do the you? Ride. Because I well, still don't really know what's going on. <laughs> that might be part of it too, is just that well, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on the second and third That's time. Fair. You can just sort of sit back and let it wash over you. But I, I did notice, you know, I mean it's hard not to notice the meta commentary going on. The obvious part is with the Julia Roberts, which we'll get to. But yeah, watching it again this time, you pick up on things like them calling themselves Ocean Eleven and sort of referencing the first movie and talking about how they're sort of forcing it this time and all these sort of things come out uh, through the dialogue. And, and Soderbergh, I do think that that article is great. And I do think it's intentional that he might have done some of these things because he's commented on the film industry before through his work, you know, so it wouldn't be out of the question for him to make this a commentary on that. One thing that I read was that he insisted that this movie was made at the same budget as the first one, and the way that it was written on IMDb seemed like it was like a bold claim, but I don't know, it kind of feels... So what's weird about this movie is that both that statement in terms of what the movie actually cost to make, but also like what it cost them to try to pull off these heists, like none of the numbers make sense in my brain. In this movie, they're trying to steal that one, the the first money order or whatever. What were they? What? Stock certificate. The first stock certificate. 
which is worth two and a half million euros. And it looks like they spend like millions and millions of dollars to try to see this one thing. And I know that's going to set up the next heist, but I'm like, none of these numbers make sense to me. They're spending so much more just to get this to set up something later. I don't even know if that actually happened because it feels like the movie <laughs> sort of fakes you out in terms of what they're actually doing because then they just sort of go in through another way. Like, I, it's all weird. I'm not sure exactly when this part of the plan is initiated, but you do find out at the end that it's all one long con, so I'm not it takes sure. It takes five people, and we have 12 here. Yes. I'm not quite sure of the time frame exactly if they're pulling off that heist in Amsterdam just for show. Yeah, it, it is sort of weird watching it. You're just sort of, sort of going like, they're not going to make it. Like, this isn't going to work. Like, how on earth is this a plan at all? I don't get it. There's a tossed-off line where one of them, I think it's Danny, says that what they're hoping to do is buy some time. Like if they can steal this heist, demonstrate to Benedict that they're working toward it, pay some of the money that they owe, not just this money, but you know they, they all list at some point how much money they have left, which is kind of funny when they, you find out who's spent everything and who you know has only spent a million dollars or whatever. And that's maybe a little bit of lip service to, to what they're trying to do. My reading of it is that this heist does happen and it happens um, that this is the heist where they find out that the Night Fox is sort of behind all this. Right? He leaves the little uh, Night right. Fox icon thing for them. Yes. And then that leads them that it's not until he sets the stage of the heist they're both going to try and do at the same time that then everything after that is the long con, like once they know what they're dealing with. I think for, in general, this movie, and this is maybe why it took me four viewings to to enjoy it as much as I do now. You can't watch it for plot. If This, this does not hold up to scrutiny the way the last one does. You have to take it on a sort of scene-by-scene enjoyment basis rather than a sort of strict scrutiny of the plot standard. I think that's the only way to watch this movie on its own terms. It's funny. I, I agree with you, and I thought of that watching this because I thought of what you said about one of your teachers back in the day where she's like, you know, all these scenes yeah. work well, but, you know, as a collective film, it's not pulling it off. And I, I felt that way about watching this movie. I'm like, wow, there's lots of great moments and lots of awesome scenes and lots of scenes done in one take that I, and I really liked the style that was going on and everything. But, you know, until you find out that it's all that one long con, you're like, this just isn't adding up for me. Like, things are just happening. Like, it's just completely random at times. And I can't really follow it exactly, but I'm, I'm having a good time watching it. And that's the important thing, I think, because he, like, keeps it fun and he keeps it light. Soderbergh, I mean, like, there's that scene in the train station where they're trying to guess how old Clooney is or ever like there's these little moments where just like oh right I just like hanging out with these guys and even if I don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it or whatever I'm still on board because these guys are just charming it's smart slick writing they can deliver it exactly the way it's supposed to be and even if I can't follow what's going on even if I don't know what the substance is the style here is all for me yeah and this is not to be underappreciated that this this is style uh it's in your face style meaning that you sort of you can tell like it's clearly stylized there's this is not a sort of realistic chamber piece kind of kind of movie but that there's a effortlessness to it that Soderbergh has that makes it feel easy right like it has to feel like they sort of just threw this thing together but in some of those long takes or even just the scenes where they're all arguing with one another the choreography both sort of performance and camera has to be impeccable for them to work and they has to be fast for them to work and you know the timing 
beginning of everything, there's a sequence, well, there's a number of sequences, but most of the high sequences, the sequence where we're introduced to the Night Fox, and he's like gambling in Monte Carlo with one woman and driving his super speedboat across Lake Como and with another woman and dancing in a ballroom at another place with another woman that moves just like lightning as they describe him. And with 15 shots, you know exactly who the guy is. Well, those 15 shots took forever to get. <laughs> like It had to be sort of very carefully choreographed. I just think it's sort of a masterpiece of choreography, if nothing else. This is a filmmaker who is working at the top of his game. And yeah, maybe the movie itself doesn't have the sort of fizz of the original, doesn't have the surprise of the original, doesn't have the witty banter between Rudy Roberts and George Clooney that the first one did. But still, he's never been as in control of his medium as he is here. And especially talking about choreography and cinematography and the Night Fox, there's a scene at the end where he sort of capoeira dances through the lasers. And even though the lasers, I'm sure, were all added after the fact, even without the lasers there, that scene is probably breathtaking to watch because it's just, it's like these precise moments and dance moves and sort of maneuvers and just sort of backflips and jumps and hops and lunges and everything about that is just it's almost like he's showing off every time that the night fox is on screen let's just show you what this guy can do even at the last i think the last one the last shot the last time we see him where they're in terry benedict's house and he, they pay him back and they're like you know whatever happens next like we're not gonna be a part of it and then like the camera just pushes into the night fox who's outside gardening it's just like a Soderbergh can't not sort of show off or like you know do these exaggerated fun precise camera movements when he's on screen and the other great thing about that laser dance move is that we've seen him do this choreography earlier in the movie. And at the time, it just plays like, oh, this is just like crazy, but super in shape Night Fox guy. And this actor, Vincent Cassell, is 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 amazing. I, I've, I've always liked him. If you watch any sort of French cinema, he's, you know, over the last... 30 years he shows up all over the place as, as well as in Hollywood stuff but you, but at first place he's he's like shirtless on you know this terrace overlooking the Mediterranean or whatever in like this these like sweatpants and he's doing all these crazy yoga tai chi moves and it just looks like he's eccentric and goofy and it's funny and and then you discover later that this, this movie is is um, like the first one is so conscious of its setups and its payoffs everything is set up and everything is paid off that nothing is in there just and it's fully satisfying as like this goofy character and then you realize oh no that this was all him practicing to, to get through these lasers and it's just i don't know i just think that works so well you know what's one thing about this movie that i noticed this time around that i didn't earlier times around is how similar or maybe it's just in a couple things but how similar the rusty storyline the brad pitt storyline is to out of sight that not only does it open with sort of this like you know forbidden love affair and this it's just a minor thing but the first thing we see is Rome three and a half years ago and we find out that this woman played by Catherine Zeta-Jones who is beautiful in this movie has been sleeping with Rusty and she's also unknowingly been chasing him as this criminal and so he jumps out the window and it reminded me, and I'm surprised that I caught this because I don't usually pay attention. Not, I don't usually. It's not that I don't pay attention to the little details, but I don't usually. I'm not able to retain them. But in Out of Sight, if you remember at the opening scene where we see the title card, Clooney like rips off his tie and like throws it on the ground. We get that freeze frame, and then you know the the credits come up. And here, Rusty jumps out the window and we freeze frame. And it's a similar thing. I'm just like, oh. And then toward the end, we find out that you know she's still chasing him. They have like the will they won't they. And then at the end, Clooney and Jennifer Lopez don't get together at the end of Out of Sight. You know, you sort of your mind has to wander past that movie to see if they would. But at the end of this movie, you sort of get a happy ending too. So it's not the central focus of this movie by any stretch of the imagination. 
But to me, it was sort of not necessarily a nod to Out of Sight, but like a, hey, let's put a little bit of a spin on this and sort of do something that I've done in another great movie in this movie. Yeah, I also saw it sort of as a parallel to Clooney and Julia Roberts in the first film, like, this is the sequel, so we're going to do a lot of things that we got to do in sequels that are sort of standard. So this time, Rusty is going to have the love story, and, you know, we're not going to be in a casino, but we're going to go overseas and sort of play around in all of Europe. But, I mean, there's no mistake in, like, there's a lot of stuff that pops back up here, like like a lot of the cast. Like, it's not just the cast from the Oceans, but like you say, Catherine Zeta-Jones is here, too, from Traffic. Like, she just fits so easily into this team, I feel, too. Like, she's just so down to be doing this and like just feels like right at home like up against like all these other people who like know each other you know like she's the newcomer and I don't feel like she can't hold her own for one scene or one minute she's really strong and assertive in this film and I love her backstory and I like that whole sort of thing that goes on like her father being the master thief and and that sort of trained Rusty and Clooney possibly for a while there's like I like that whole mythology that is sort of also expanded with sequels as well like you even get rusty's actual name (laughs) at one point so yeah we're finding out all types of new stuff along the way and what i like about the cast not only the fact that six of ocean's 12 or six people in this movie at least they're not all in this group because one's Catherine zeta jones but six of these 12 now have oscars so like it's not only like a cast that's fun but it's a cast that like knows how to act it is can we name them all i have the list here somewhere george clooney brad pitt julia roberts matt damon Catherine zeta jones and now casey affleck all have oscars so it's a heavy hitting cast but what i also like and i wonder if consciously or unconsciously the Fast and the Furious franchise learned from this because that's an ever-growing group that gets along well with each other. And also, in The Fate of the Furious, where we have Helen Mirren show up as Jason Statham's mom, here we get Matt Damon's mom. And so, like, I wondered if that was sort of lifted from this. Like, hey, you know, there's this other movie with, like, this gigantic cast of superstar actors. I mean, obviously, the, the Fast and the Furious people don't you know, down from top to bottom, don't line up, don't match up well with the Oceans people. They're all bigger stars in these movies, but, like, they're all big stars that all work together and oh yeah we also just have like a cool way to fit a character's mom in the movie and have it make sense this is one of my favorite bits in the whole movie if you don't know to be looking for cons in the 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 movie's going to con you after the last movie and the first three quarters of this movie then you really sort of haven't been paying attention and yet i remember so distinctly the very first time i see it that when these suvs pull into the station and cherry jones who's new york stage actress wonderful wonderful actress she shows up and is this like do they ever say what she is exactly she's some u.s government agent and she shows up and with all these suvs as as if she's you know gonna go extradite these guys back to the united states and she pulls matt damon out and is like breaking him which you know in the interrogation cell and then they all get brought and you really does i really the first time i saw it really felt like oh my god like they've just they're being like put in jail like what are they gonna do now and then it's in the in the suv as she's sitting next to matt damon and takes his cuffs off and then he's like you told dad oh mom like it's this great (laughs) great moment where you realize that she's his mom and we knew from the previous movie that he has that he's a legacy right that he's like been under his father's shadow or his parent's shadow or whatever matt damon has and it's just this great he's such a teenager in that moment he plays it so he shines in this movie so much i think that he has really sort of come into that character i liked him last time too but even more so here Anyway, that's a bit that's always stuck in. I I look forward to that whole sequence with such relish every time that I see this movie. So I have a couple bits of quick trivia about that. In the script, 
they had written in his dad, too, and they wrote him in as Clint Eastwood, and that didn't happen. But then they cast somebody who's been in another Soderbergh movie. They cast Peter Fonda, who filmed a bit part for this movie, but that got cut. So there was... So Cherry Jones is married to either Clint Eastwood or Peter Fonda. Take your pick in this world. <laughs> well, and then eventually in part three, they do cast his dad, Dave Osborne. Matt Damon had just finished The Born Supremacy, filming The Born Supremacy when he went to shoot this one, and he asked Soderbergh to cut down his part because he was just so exhausted, and Soderbergh said, no, like, we can't make your part smaller. Which I think works because in the first movie, he wants to be a bigger part, and they don't really let him right, in here. Right, right. I mean, who knows what this would have been if, if Soderbergh said yes, but, like, here they sort of say, again, they're like, all right, fine, we'll bring you along, and, like, he just screws up every step of the way, but then actually becomes, like, this really important, pivotal part. It almost felt like at this point, Damon, he is born now. So, I mean, they, you know, they would want him to have a bigger role in the sequel because he's just more famous and give him more screen time and stuff. And I, and I do like how early on in the movie he comes to Rusty and he's like, look, this time I want to play a bigger role and all this stuff. And I, I was sort of getting a little bit of that meta context there too as well where it's just like now i'm not that matt damon anymore i'm this matt damon now like i'm more of a star like give me a bigger role in this movie sort of moment in the movie i thought that played really well too but i also love that scene with uh robbie coltrane where they're he's their contact and they're doing the lost in translation bit and it's sort of like they're testing linus to see if he can actually sort of sit at the table with the big boys and is it clear if he can or not? Because I can't figure it out. Like, he screws up, but, like, does he? I, I don't even know what's going on in the scene, except it's just wonderful to watch. It was a con on him. That's just a con on right, him. Right, okay. That, that's all. They're, he's just, like, they're like all just... hazing. Yeah, I they're just hazing him. Yeah, yeah, okay. Cashmere, really? <laughs> it's just, there's a swagger and a confidence to this movie that is sort of matched by both the performances and the characters and the filmmaking. This is a point my wife made, that there's the, that, that sort of effortlessness. It's not just effortlessness. It's like a swagger, the same way the guys pull off their heists. You know, they, they end up, even if you don't think they're in control by the end, they've sort of been in control for most of the movie. And that that's sort of, there's something I find so satisfying about that. How do you guys feel about the Julie Roberts thing where she ends up playing Julia Roberts. This got some negative press at the time it came out, and, and I, I've always loved it. I love it. If I remember one thing about this movie, it's the one where Julia Roberts plays herself. Right. Like, I just love it. Like, this whole movie, like, I think that works because the movie sets up that it exists in a world full of movies. That they quote Miller's Crossing. Like, you remember that line from Miller's Crossing? And they, they do a couple other things. And then, you know, after they have Julia Roberts show up, Bruce Willis shows up as himself. Yeah. So, like, it's established that in this world. And also, from the first movie, we know that Topher Grace is Topher Grace. Right, right. And, you know, and it's just established whole... early on right. in this movie. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's this world where Hollywood and TV and movies exist. And I think because that exists, it's believable that we could have Julia Roberts as Julia Roberts. That it's not like it's just a movie world where like, oh, like let's just cast her as herself. But it's because they're not watching movies, they're not watching TV, but they talk about it and like they reference it and they hang out with actors and whatever. So I think it, it makes sense to me and then works and I love it. I feel like they watch a lot of Oprah, these guys, <laughs> at times, but I agree. I like it, too. I remember at the time when I first watching it, like it being one of my favorite parts, just because of just how odd it seemed at the time. I feel like it's a great joke, but it, it may have been a little, like, ahead of its time or, or with the wrong audience, mm -hmm. even. Like, it's something that you 
you see on like the Simpsons or something, you know, or you see a lot of it nowadays, perhaps like they do these kinds of like breaking the fourth wall. Like I see it in Last Action Hero is the last time I guess I saw it, right? Where like Arnold runs into the guy he plays that came out of the movie screen and he's like, oh, I love you. And then he turns around and he goes, you brought me nothing but pain. <laughs> um, a fun moment. But what really struck me is that Julia Roberts would do this joke, that she'd be down for it. I think that's really great too. Like that, you know what I'm saying? Like that she's not full of herself to the degree where she won't poke right. fun at herself, you know, and even to the degree to pretend to be pregnant uh, and all that kind of thing. And yeah, I think it works really well, actually. I think that comes down to her just having a trust and faith and love for Steven Soderbergh, right? Because Aaron Brockovich was so successful for her and him. Won her an Oscar. And then she came yeah. back for Full Frontal. I feel like she says, basically, and I, I mean, I don't know, I don't have any notes about this, but like, whatever you want to try to do, I'm game for. Like, if you think this will work, if this is best for the movie, best for whatever, I'm good. And that it's, it's awesome. Well, she knows she's in good hands. And, and she's surrounded by a bunch of other actors who are, you know, who've known her forever. And it also echoes a, a thing in, if I'm not mistaken, in The Player, the Robert Altman movie set in Hollywood, where they're trying to make a movie over the course, of, it's sort of in the background of the, there's a movie within the movie being made at a studio, and they're trying to get all these new young stars they end up with i think at the end it's bruce willis and julia roberts there is a there is all there are all kinds of of sort of in jokes in this movie and the thing that i appreciated about it this time is to see julia roberts become julia roberts like she you know she's playing tess in the movie and then she plays pretty woman julia roberts when she's with Bruce Willis and, and trying to act like Julia Roberts and, and with the laugh and the smile and you're like oh my god she she really can just turn this on like she can just this is a, a switch she can flip this is a, a mode she can go into and to see that happen I, I, I was I was impressed I think it's too easy to dismiss her role here as oh she just you know came in and played herself she's playing another character playing Julia Roberts so she has to know what she is sort of known for from the outside you know I think it's a, it's a sort of remarkable a little bit of acting. Yeah, she has more of a southern drawl. You gotta, you gotta yeah, yeah. have a little bit of southern twang in your voice. <laughs> but what I really like about that is not only what she's doing, which is great, which you just explained exactly why it's great, but we have all these other huge actors playing characters suddenly now in the presence of her and Bruce Willis. And like Matt Damon as Linus yes, saying to yes. Bruce Willis, like, you know, like referencing the sixth sense, like, you know, as soon as she didn't talk to you in the restaurant, like I knew I knew what I knew what was up. And it's just like they're equals on some level in Hollywood. They're both massive, massive stars. But now suddenly he's just like a no-name pickpocket, and he's suddenly in the presence of one and a half kind of giant movie stars. You know what I mean? Like he's just in over his head, and it's just it's wonderful to see. I, I think it's really great that they had Bruce Willis there as well. Like it really helped to sell it a lot more. Mm. You know, if it was just Julia Roberts, it would have been fun and funny and everything. But like. What? What? Like the just like the randomness, but also. Well, if you remember, he was cast as Danny Ocean in the first movie and had to pull out. Oh, well, there you go. Well, here's right. the, here's the thing of trivia I wanted to ask you about that scene. Um, like, did they keep it from Julia Roberts that Bruce Willis was there because it almost feels like she didn't know he's going <laughs> to be on set, or, or is she just that great? When she actress? like shrieks. Yeah, and from that moment, it just really feels like they sort of pranked her or something, and like, nope, this is going to be in the movie, like here's your scene it's gonna be with bruce willis either that or like she yeah she really shines in that moment because i believe that she did not expect to see him there whatsoever well i don't have any news about that i don't have any notes about that i do have notes about another prank as we know george clooney classic prankster that i say with a little a wink and a nod like it's it's funny but it's also like overblown kind of annoying but 
apparently Brad Pitt put out a memo to the entire cast that they only should refer to Clooney on set as either Danny or Mr. Ocean. Like, the entire time, even when they're not filming, just never refer to him as George or Mr. Clooney, just always Danny or Mr. Ocean. And so eventually, Clooney found out that Brad Pitt was behind this, and so he got back at him by putting a bumper sticker on his car that said small penis on board so there you go (laughs) classic pranks on set wow they are mature (laughs) (laughs) the other thing i want to say is that julia roberts when she called this is the other thing that she says so julia roberts as tess calls julia roberts as julia roberts on the phone and talks to herself and has a conversation and they reference the movie clowns can't sleep like that's the movie she's quote-unquote filming in la which is the working title for this movie so it's this whole like meta narrative you know she's there because she's working on this movie but she's actually it's just it's, it's like, like a primer it's, it's my, exactly it's, it's exactly like, it's like he did make his sci-fi movie again <laughs> And one other, one other unrelated reference like that is that Topher Grace, when he shows up and he trashed the hotel room and he's talking to Brad Pitt, he mentions that he phoned it in during a movie with Dennis Quaid, which was In Good right, Company, right. which came out the same time as Ocean's 12. So whether or not he actually did phone it in or that was just a joke or whatever, because it came out the same month as this movie, it's just another one of those like, hey, we're in a world where movies and movie stars exist. No, he got good reviews for that movie, and is and is fine, is quite good in it, and, and I think it's just a joke on the, you know, like to make it feel very of the moment, and and that's always been a joke with him, that like or any sort of sitcom star, right? That they like, oh, they're just phoning it in when they come to the movies. Well, another thing I wanted to say is that the the other thing about the style in this movie is that we came not to blows, we came to arguments about style in full frontal. Me arguing that that was style, just not style that you liked. The thing that I think works so well about the style he's using here is that it's all motivated by the characters and by the story. And it's very, very little in it is generic. Like there's no, this is not a generic heist movie, even if it feels like you've seen it before. He's sort of, he's remixing it in some way. The, the whole last montage where we see how they actually stole the egg, he's using all kinds of experimental or near experimental techniques in a way that that I think is just, just works so well. There's a moment when Julie Roberts is arriving and the plane is landing. It's, the, it's the, the plane landing at the airport shot. And it's shot sideways, right? Like the cameras turn sideways and it pans instead of tilts with the plane so that the plane flies across the screen as it lands on the ground. And on one hand, it's like, oh, this is just, he just found a cool way to shoot this shot. But on another hand, why does it feel so right for that moment? And it has to do with the fact that she is experiencing such disorientation at that moment. She's being called in to do, she doesn't really know what, right? Like she doesn't know yet that Danny's in jail and that they that they need her help to sort of like pull off a heist. Like this is all going to be news to her. So I, th- I think it, so often in this movie, he's using some real extreme style, but for reasons that are motivated by the story and the characters, which makes it feel earned and fresh in a way that otherwise it might feel just sort of masturbatory or like they're just sort of for his own pleasure. And I, I, th- I just think that that's part of what makes it so satisfying. Well, yeah, I mean, like I was not shy about criticizing him for K Street and Full Frontal and all that kind of stuff. And like, we know that he does things just to be weird about it. But at the same time, shots like that, that just prove that he knows what he's doing. And it reminds me in a similar way or whatever, unrelated to what we're talking about now, but something that we all watch that has now ended 
three or four months ago is Twin Peaks, The Return. And in the first episode, David Lynch has like establishing shot of New York that's like weird and alien and like unlike anything you've ever seen before. And just like, how is this so weird and new, but also right for the scene? It's just like, oh, because both he and Soderbergh in this shot are like masters of their craft and know exactly what they're doing. And it's like this ability to shoot things that you've seen in every movie right. or every TV show right. in a new way that not only is cool, but like works for the scene, works for the tone and the mood and everything. You're like, oh, wow. Like there's something like, I, I don't know if I can articulate it, but there's something special about this. Yeah. And to me, like these are all payoffs for these experiments that he's done, like K Street mm-hmm, and right. Frontal or whatever I haven't really liked. Like this is all where it's like where it was leading to, you know, so that he could have mastery of, of these tricks and, and actually apply them when they count to a film like Ocean's 12, you know, like to have that just to implant that subconscious feeling in someone's mind through a shot at that point in the film, because you, you know, that's the what's that's the way the characters sort of feeling or you're trying to convey some sort of try to relate to this character in some way it's like yeah i'm gonna you know it's like a magic trick it's like we sort of said with him uh, several times before yeah i also really like he mixes mediums often he does it again in this movie he uses sort of different stocks like i you know when Catherine zeta jones goes into the house that they raised the one that the fox got to first and she's like they did this they did that they did this and we're watching it back but it's all sort of this it feels like dv quality almost like low tape or it was just shot really rough and quick because it was you know going to be a memory and a flashback um and so you know while i wouldn't have liked to have seen that actual heist play out that way the fact that it is shown through a flashback to a degree or at least someone guessing approximately what has been going on there i think it worked to mix up the style of it at that time too so yeah he, he just is in control here even if we can't tell or don't think he is by the end of the movie he makes it clear that like nope i've been you know i've been behind this the whole time i know what i was doing and I think he's also taking from things that have worked better. Like, not only does the different stock, the film stock or whatever, remind me of traffic, but also the beginning of this movie has like this global feel, sort of like traffic, where we're going from oceans one to two to three to four as Terry Benedict shows up in all these places. You're jumping from time to time and place to place and it's got this like different feel kind of everywhere he's going and it's a, it's a way to establish or reestablish the characters but also to show different places and different moods and everything and it's just like so well done and also I do want to say maybe my favorite shot that we've seen in any movie yet is when Andy Garcia shows up playing the piano in that reflection <laughs> yes yes it's just like so dumb and silly and just like it's just a delight and I just couldn't stop smiling after that I really enjoy when he shows up to get Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn that's like one of my favorite moments of the whole movie when he's like when Casey Affleck's like thanking everybody in his family and you're panning down the whole long table and it ends on Scott Kahn and he's not thanked and as he's standing up Terry sort of just puts his golf club down on his shoulder and like commands him to get up and, and walk to the front and makes his speech yeah I love when he's collecting the ocean crew to get back at him like all those bits are really great and especially like also how they keep up Frank's need to get his pedicures like throughout 
the whole movie, like the whole series. He's all about those nail salons. I don't understand it. <laughs> and then Rusty continues to eat here too. Like every scene, he's again eating, just like he is in the first movie. And it's that it's like that attention to detail and these little moments that you don't have to notice. You don't have to remember from the first one. It's these throwaway lines that just make movies like this so much fun to rewatch. At one point, they're talking about who's on the hundred dollar bill, and everybody says the right answer, and the one guy just says John Travolta. <laughs> like, how is that? Whoever had that idea, like I'm sure a lot of names in that situation would be funny, but for that to come out just like sort of like half a second after the fact, it's just little things like that. Or when someone, I think Julia Roberts yells at Matt Damon, she just says, Linus Caldwell Jr. Varsity. Like even she doesn't take him seriously. Like it's, it's smart writing. It's the delivery. It's just these movies are just fun to watch. There's a great moment where right before one of the heists, I can't remember now which one, George Clooney gets his wake-up call and he checks his watch and he gets out of bed and he goes and knocks on Brad Pitt's door and Brad Pitt opens the door and it's like, it's supposed to be 8 o'clock the next morning. He thinks it's 8 o'clock the next morning. It's actually 11 o'clock the night before or however late. And you realize the Night Fox has snuck into his room and reset his watch and then like set up this call. It's just such a great, especially Clooney as the prankster, right? Like in real life on, on set that you could sort of see where this is resonating with that too. And then he's already had a bunch of espresso or something. So they sit up drinking wine and they're both getting really drunk and Rusty and Danny. Rusty holds his wine glass out and Danny reaches over with neither of them looking at each other to pour the wine and it ends up just pouring on the carpet like just and then they don't notice it just little deadpan stuff like that that just again moment to moment this the movie is joey as you said it's delightful it's a delight this movie is a delight and i think that you need to take it that way and that shot of them drinking wine may or may not be the featured image on cageclub.me for this movie because it's just so like it reminds me also of the first movie where i think they're at a strip club or maybe they're just at a bar and i think it's Clooney, it's Clooney and Pitt. And one of them is talking, I think it's Clooney just saying, like, you think we need one more? You think we need one more? Like, he's having, like, both sides of the conversation. And it kind of feels like that. Like, I think in this scene, Brad Pitt's doing all the talking or whatever. Like, it's just, they're able to have a conversation with each other, even if one of them's not talking. It's this implied friendship, this implied history, and it's just the two actors together and just people you like in, like, a movie that feels like a hug. Like, it's just, ah, oh, it's good. <laughs> and that show that they're watching is Happy Days. Yeah, right? yeah. They're right. watching, like, foreign language Happy Days and commenting on how good the overdub is and everything. <laughs> but I think what's coming through is, like, this just it feels very personal in a way you know like everybody seems to know each other and how to push each other's buttons and not in like a bad way but just to sort of get them in the mood to have fun and riled up and get the fires kicking and there's somehow he's able to make like this small personal heist film while making this big budget heist film like at times it feels like I wish Soderbergh was like making movies in France in the 60s and shooting French New Wave. And then at other times, I'm like, wow, I, I wish he would shoot like a Marvel movie because of the way some of this looks. You know, it's just really cool how like he can sort of merge those two worlds in a way. One other thing that I have in my notes is that the way that they steal the egg, that it happens before it actually, like they, you know, they steal it in transit, was this was based on a actual event from 1905. Do you guys know about this? That No, I thought it was based on the New York-Boston rivalry. <laughs> uh, well, it is, it is founded in that, absolutely. But in 1905, there was the Cullinan Diamond, and they tried to transport it from South Africa to England. It had 3,106 uncut carrots. And so they made this really big show that they were going to put this on this boat, and they had all this, you know, security and all these high 
ranking people so that anybody who wanted to try to steal it would go after this boat and then they just mailed it in the regular mail to England and oh, just like nice. in a plain plain package so like it's not that exactly but it's that type of bucking the trend or whatever and misdirection exactly yeah which the whole movie from that point on like is it's all like that misdirection that sleight of hand that look over here where really like we're doing stuff over here yeah i like that scene a lot like i I thought that was like pretty funny and topical and like touristy to have these americans meet on a like as the as sort of the plan is like we're gonna play like americans that hate each other simply because one's wearing a new york yankees hat and the other's wearing a boston red sox hat I don't have a whole ton more to talk about this movie. I have a couple of little bits of trivia I can drop at the end, but it's weird how so much happens in this and also not really much at all, because everything, all the important stuff happens off screen. Like, we're just seeing the misdirection, both for the character's sake, but also for the moviegoer's sake. And that's, you know, a kind of a key element to that Matt Singer theory is about why stuff happens off screen and so on and so forth. But it's weird that, like, you can watch a movie that's over two hours long and be like, well, nothing really happens, even though, like, a lot seems to happen. The one major thing that I was glad that was resolved was uh, the stuff with Lamarck actually connecting Catherine Zeta Jones to him the whole story behind you know now that the mother has passed away they can be together there's some falling out because her father was like this master thief Uh, but then also the idea that Lamarck is sort of like part of the reason that they were all caught because the night fox was hanging out on the boat there while jerry weintraub was sort of shooting his mouth off about the last movie and talking about the ocean crew and everything so i really like how that had more payoff um, like everything else in this everything's got its payoff but it had more payoff than just he's he's gonna be this one beat for the story it's like no he's like he's actually got more going on too he has this daughter that he never saw and the ocean boys are gonna help him get reunited with her and he actually stole the egg once before and his wife made him give it back so they're gonna sort of steal the egg for him again like there's all this nice stuff going on with that Lamarck storyline as well I mean he's only in the movie as a like an actor for what like 30 seconds total but he looms over the movie his sort of presence looms over the movie and it's it is really nice to see Albert Finney in <laughs> yet another Soderbergh movie there's another thing in the Catherine Zeta-Jones section again uh, something I've mentioned on a lot of these podcasts you know, about Soderbergh's ability to capture intimacy visually and there, there's a little I think maybe Rusty's remembering his sort of courtship of Catherine Zeta-Jones when they were first getting together, and you see a montage of them meeting at the cafe, and he's like racing past being chased by the cops the first time or whatever. And and there's a, there's a shot in there where they're dancing at a club, and most of the people dancing around them are all red, and then they're sort of spotlit from above by this white or clear light. And it's just such a great. It's it's not too heavy-handed, but I did rewind it and pause it and <laughs> to look at it and sort of you know gesticulating and yelling to my wife, "Look at this! This is so amazing what he's doing." I think he, again, is has a way to sort of, whether the movie is working like this one or not working so well, like Full Frontal, is still able to find new and fresh ways to show us characters sort of in intimate situations and, and, and sort of discovering one another. I just think he does that. He does that really, really well. Yeah, and I feel like he also sort of plays more with music this time around. Like we got some some of that great soul and funk stuff going on again for the boys and everything. But when we cut to Catherine Zeta-Jones, we got like that great guitar going on, right? And it's just like almost like a dreamy sort of finger picking stuff happening. And then like Joey mentioned earlier, when we cut to the Night Fox trying to steal the egg, he's got like that really sort of 
terrible electronic dance music going on that like only Eurotrash would probably own. But like, I feel like he's sort of assigning themes this time to, to moments or characters a little more so than he maybe had a chance to do in the first film. Because that was just a little more, a little tighter, a little more contained within Las Vegas. And this one, it just breathes a little bit more than the last one, perhaps. I'm a little worried about 13 because I remember not having seen, because I've seen 11 a ton of times, and I've seen this one twice, and I think I've seen 13 once. But if you ask me like what I thought of them, I remember this one being sort of a radical departure, and then 13 felt like, you know, not having seen it for a couple of years, kind of like a course correction, like, oh, let's bring it back to Vegas and bring it back to the style of the movie, the first movie that people wanted. That, like, the first movie was such a gigantic success that the box office mojo listed as an $85 million budget made $450 million worldwide. Jeez. This one, box office mojo said had a 115 budget so who knows whether that's right or Soderbergh's right or if he you know lost that battle or whatever new marketing I'm sure. right but it uh it only made only quote unquote only made 360 so I mean oh, it's geez. still a lot it still made a lot of money geez, yeah. but you know it's 90 million off the first one and then the third one I don't remember the budget but it made like 310 so they never go the right way they never make more money but I remember it being similar in tone and style and everything to the first one, and I'm worried if it's going to feel like too much of a retread. I mean, we've got that, I think, three or four movies down the line. We've got a couple other non-Oceans movies in between, so it's not too long before we get there. But I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering how it's going to be. This one was a pleasant surprise. I think we're all sort of pleasantly surprised that liking it a little bit more than we thought we might, or, you know, it continuing to grow on us. But I just, I'm a little worried about 13, but I mean... He hasn't really let us down in a big budget movie yet, so the only things I've really actively disliked is his weirdo experimental cheap stuff that I see the value in. I just never want to see again. I, I, I am I feel the in some ways the same way as you, although I think I'm maybe because of this experience more hopeful than I was. Every time I've watched these movies, I've watched all three of them. I don't think I've ever seen. I think I've I've not seen one of them more than the others, and I I have only dim memories of the third one as well. I think that the some of the criticism of this one, which I felt early on in my viewing of it earlier times, was that it, it didn't have the same sense of kind of menace. Like they're, you don't really worry about them. Like they're not really going to, like Terry Benedict is not really going to kill them. Like that's not going to happen in this movie. And we know that. And I think that the movie, you know, smartly is then about other things and is, and is sort of is delightful as, as we've talked about. And my memory is that cause Al Pacino comes in in 13 and he is the menace as I recall in that movie. And I, I maybe, I don't remember that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that may, that may have to do with why it feels feels more like the first one, whereas this one feels more like, like a lark. I remember at the time 13 came out, a lot of the press and whether this was just press and press talk, but a lot of it was sort of about, oh, we wanted to sort of set things right because of the last movie. And sort of knowing how kind of like candid Soderbergh is, I could see him going in front of a camera and being like, yeah, you know, last time, maybe not so good, so we want to bring it back to Vegas and give the people what they want, something like that. I I mean, I think Pacino is a strong addition. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen it in a few years. I've seen it a couple times, though, but I remember enjoying it. I hope I like it as much as I remember liking it this time around, going through, you know, all of his work in a row. I don't know where else you could have really taken the Oceans movies. I think people may have been a little disappointed that Oceans 12 didn't take place in, like, a, a casino, right? I think people hear the Oceans and they just sort of associate it with 
casinos and specifically Las Vegas. Like even if they brought like to Monte Carlo, do you think that if like they were in Monte Carlo, it would have been people would have liked it more? I mean, not more maybe, but I think that it would have gone down easier if they said maybe they like went to Dubai or something in Ocean's Twelve and just sort of stayed there or you know somewhere like that where they could just heist a casino or just heist one thing. Now, me personally, I I enjoyed the departure and trilogies. You know, part threes, they're always. I mean, that's that's always a crapshoot. You could either really tie the series together in a nice bow, or it could all just sort of fall apart on the floor by the end. <laughs> uh, it really is hard to tell, but um, hopefully, it's uh, it's it stands up to uh, the way I remember. One last thing about this movie, maybe Joey, you were going to get to this in the trivia, is that the script for this movie was not originally an Ocean's script, right? The George Nolfi, the writer of this movie, is on the commentary with Soderbergh and, and also in the making of stuff. They talk about how Jerry Weintraub, had en- the producer of the movie, had ended up getting a script of George Nolfi's that was about like a, was a heist comedy and Honor Among Thieves, I think it was called. And he's like, hey, this could make a great Oceans movie if we just put our characters in it. And then and this will be, you know. I say as a screenwriter to the eternal credit of the of the producer and of Soderbergh then went to the original writer and said hey could you put the Oceans guys in it rather than bringing in a bunch of other people to who had already worked on the Oceans movies to do it or on an Ocean movie to do it I think that that you know, it, to me, it does not feel like a different script. Although then, as when you know that afterwards, you can say, "Oh yeah." So part of it having that fresh flavor is that this this wasn't originally written to be an Ocean's movie. And I think at the time, some people groused about that. But I think I agree, Mike. I think it's was smart for them to go somewhere other than a casino. I think in order to keep it fresh and then allow you to return to the casino world in the, in the third one, I think that that works really well here. Or Tobin, did you see who was supposed to direct the movie that he wrote it for? No, no, who. It's a real Cajun action, John Woo. No Whoa. kidding. Yep, it's supposed to be a John Woo movie. Could have been interesting. Huh. Oh. The only other movie that I'm aware of off the top of my head that was written for something else was Die Hard 3, was a script called Simon Says, and then they converted it into John McClane, and that... I feel like that's a better Die Hard sequel than uh, Die Hard Two. No, but that's I a wrote podcast a, for another day. This is uh, this is off track, but I, I got into an argument at a girl with a girl that I've never met before at a party, and I wrote a four thousand word Die Hard dissertation about why that's the worst Die Hard movie. Whoa. That I think, in terms of what a Die Hard movie actually is, I think. This was before Five came out, and I thought that in, not in terms of like how good they are, because everybody. I think I'm the only person in the world who doesn't love Three. Everybody loves Three, but I think that in terms of what a Die Hard movie is, it goes one, two, four, three. I think Three is so radically different that it four, doesn't. Three. Four, three. I'm not saying wow. Four is better than Three. I'm just saying for what it is and sort of what the first movie establishes, I think Four is closer to One than Three is. But I just, I just don't like Die Hard with a Vengeance. Is that the Samuel L. Jackson one? Yeah. I've only seen that once. I've seen the first one a lot, but the other ones I don't I haven't even seen all of them. I'm not I'm not Well, fully Simon says to watch Die Hard 3. The only other little bit of trivia I had is that Ricky Gervais turned down a role as Basher's engineer because he's like why should I just stand across from Matt Damon. I mean, he was—he would have been with Don Cheadle, but he said, why, why should I stand across from Matt Damon and just say a few lines when I could be in a, a lead in another movie? Which makes me think, small part, small actor? I don't know. The other thing is that Yen has a Canon XL1S when he's filming things in the beginning of the movie, and that's the same camera that he used for Full Frontal. So, a little bit of a nod to another Soderbergh thing. Yeah, we used, we used that camera in film school. That was our... You know, because uh, I was in film school when this movie was out in grad school, and that was those were the, the the cameras we could advance to by the time we were you know in our third or fourth year. Any other thoughts about Ocean's Twelve? 
There's one other line that I just want to shout out because we haven't talked about about Saul in this movie yet. He has a and he's because he's not in it a lot. I mean, he sort of ducks out of the crew for a while and then eventually comes back. But he has this great line when he is leaving where he, he's telling the, the crew that he's not going to be part of this thing. And he says, I want the last check I write to bounce and then walks out of the room. And he just, the way his delivery of that and that line, like, I wish I'd written that line. Like it's so sometimes, especially in these movies, they're so well-crafted that you hear a line like that. And it just, it's a little arch. It's a little much. It's a little, but it's such, it's such a movie line, but my God, it works in that moment. And he, and he really sells it. And he's also good as the guy with the weird accent. Lyman Zerga. Yeah, he comes back, and this time he's the doctor. Yes, he's yes. got that accent again. <laughs> Mike, any last thoughts? You know, just that if you have seen this before and you were sort of like, eh, it wasn't that great, I mean, I really feel like it deserves a second chance. Like, this, you know, before a lot of movies, deserves a second chance. Um, I think it plays a lot better the second time. I think maybe, you know, some years distance makes it feel a little more special. Like, there's stuff going on here that I haven't seen in modern movies like movies going on today like there's still filmmaking stuff that Soderbergh is doing then that I feel that people aren't doing now so I think you should definitely give it another shot Uh, and if you have seen it and liked it watch it again because it's a lot of fun and I definitely like it uh, way more than I used to well said well said I'm excited for the next two movies because before we get to Ocean's 13, we have Bubble and The Good German, which are two that I have not seen. They're both smaller movies. At least Bubble is very small movies. Good German, it's smaller, compared, especially compared to these, right? Yeah, but, but big cast. A lot of people you'll recognize. You're not going to recognize anybody in, in Bubble, but you will recognize actors in Good German. Well, that's fair. So we get two more, then we got Ocean's 13. So we'll be back to this world soon. And then maybe way down the line. I don't know. We haven't really talked about I don't think we're going to go back. I mean, maybe. Like, you know when Cage releases a new movie and we go back and watch that? Like, when Soderbergh puts out a new thing, are we going to go back? And, yes. So, I guess maybe we'll do Ocean's 8, too. Yes, so, yes. Although I mean, he's not it's not going to be the end. He's not directing. But it's still his world, oh, good. kind of. Okay. And I feel like we've started the series. Maybe we should just, from now on, <laughs> anything under the Ocean's yeah, banner, yeah. <laughs> we'll watch. So for all things Cinemakers and the other, the Ocean's Eleven movie that we recorded a couple weeks ago, or we released a couple weeks ago, and Ocean's Thirteen, which will come out in three weeks, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. Find all of the shows. We're now into January 2018, which means we have lots of shows available. We're about a month into Ryan Gosling podcast. We're a month into the Channing Tatum podcast. Lots of things going on. Philip Seymour Hoffman's probably still going strong. Hopefully now and again and Wistful Thinking are still going strong. Lots of fun free things for you to listen to at those three places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Sin Makers. Sin Makers.